Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. We are in the book of Hebrews, and we have been there um, for quite a time now, and if you're coming here, kind of realize you're in the midst of something, so you've definitely missed a few, uh, a few things, but we're looking forward to, we're going to be later on in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, 18, and if you know anything about the book of Hebrews and that passage, it's, it's a lot, but we're, uh, that's where we're going to be at today. Kids, um, I wonder if, if you could answer a question for me. If your parent, if I were to ask you, what is your parents' will for you? What comes to mind? What is your parents' will for you? What do your parents want for you and from you? You know, or or adults, maybe when you were, maybe what do you want for your kids? You know, and maybe sometimes as kids, what gets communicated to us or when we were kids is, you know what my parents really want for me is just for me to be kind of quiet and out of the way so they can do whatever's more important to them. Sometimes we can communicate that with our kids or maybe, but I know if I were to ask any of your parents or when we were kids, what our parents will for us? What was it? It was that our kids would grow up, right, to, to learn skills and to become successful functioning adults, right? I don't know exactly, but... I want you to think about that. What do you think your parents' will is for you? And then here's the question. What is God's will for us? What is God's will for us? Just to be quiet, to sit in, you know, sit in church, to not get in the way of his plans. What is it? I hope you leave here today with that. I want you to, if you, there's a story in Matthew about a leper, somebody with leprosy, not a leopard with spots, uh, but a leper who comes to Jesus. And if you know anything about leprosy, and, and if you kind of look at it, really modern day leprosy is a little different from leprosy in that time and in, in, in the Bible time, but leprosy was this skin disease. And, and, and you know, if you know anything at all about it, there's a, a leper was somebody who was considered unclean. I mean, a lot of times there was deformities, there was white, scaly skin falling off. They were somebody in society that were incredibly unclean. Nobody wanted to be around them. They would have to live outside of the city because it didn't matter where you came from, whether you were rich or poor, wherever your spot was in government, if you came down with leprosy, you were an outcast. I mean, you actually had to, if you were around other people that weren't lepers, you would have to yell out, unclean, to let them know that you're there, and people would get their children, and they'd walk a long way around you. So there's this man that shows up to Jesus. He's a leper, and I just want you to to hear these words. He says in Matthew 8, 2, it says, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if if you will, you can make me clean. And again, we ask the question, what is God's will for you? Jesus' response, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Again, that's unthinkable. Nobody touches a leper saying, I will be clean. How many of you are clean people? You know, you live your life 
as a, as a clean person, you know, and, and I used to think that I was a clean person, um, but then I realized, because I don't, you know, I don't like messes, but then what I realized is I just don't like, and I've talked about this before up here, I don't like your messes, <laughs> right? We have a minivan. We have four kids, and every once in a while, you know, I don't normally get in the back of my minivan, but what is it about minivans that just get messy? It doesn't matter. You, know, you can clean them in the very next day. And just, you know, a couple weeks ago, I've just been, it's been building and building, and every once in a while, I look back, and I'm like, wow, how are you guys living in this mess? You guys have a cleanliness problem back there, right? And there's just, there's trash, and there's just toys and stuff everywhere. And, and I never wanted to have a, be like, we, we've had dogs for a while, but we had an outside dog, but now we have an inside dog and, and he loves riding in the van. And so he gets in the van and you know what that means, right? Dog hair. And our van can smell like dog, right? And I realized we have a cleanliness problem. And I would, I would just be like the kids, you know, how can you guys stand this mess? This is terrible. And so the other day, we we're going to take Laurel to the airport. And so I got my vacuum out and I, I cleaned it all up, you know, and, and then I'm like, man, how can they stand this? And then I went and got in the car that I drive every day. And I realized like, this is worse than the minivan, but I didn't notice it because your messes bother me much more. Every one of us is like this leper. We have a Clean, cleanliness problem. Maybe you've heard, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Most of us have heard by now that quote doesn't actually come from the Bible. But if you read through the book of Leviticus, maybe you would wonder if maybe it's there and they just translated it differently because the Bible is all about this problem that we have similar to the leper. It's a cleanliness problem. In the book of Hebrews, we've been up here, Mike's been up here and saying, showing us how we have an incredible high priest, Jesus Christ. And we also have, we've been talking about um, this paradigm shift from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so not only do we have this great high priest, we have this new way that he spoke about last week up here that's been opened up to us. But the problem or the thing I want you to think about today is... How do you remove a stain that is so deep and so penetrating, it goes down to the roots? I mean, all of us, if you've ever had, have you ever, anybody ever had something where you got a stain on your clothes? And maybe it was like a favorite shirt and you got a stain on it. And you're like, oh no, what do I do? And there's, there's whole industry built around this, right? How do you get a stain out of clothing? You got to find some way to wash it, right? I remember one of my, uh, my first jokes that I, I told when I was a kid, and it was kind of one of those times I must have not told many jokes because this one stands out in my mind. And because I remember somehow, with my, I think it was with my grandparents, I was young, we were talking about, I don't know if we were talking about stains or, or how the joke got set up, but I, I told them, you know what, late at night, we can usually hear, our, when we're in our beds, we can hear our mom in the other room getting stains out. And they're like, what, what do you mean? Well, she's in there and she's shouting them out, right? Because that's how you get a stain out, right? You got to have some shout and you got to, you know, but what do you do though? Have you ever had that when you have a, a stain that you, you know, you spray it and you scrub it and it just doesn't come out because the deeper, the deeper the stain goes, the harder it is to get out. All of us like this leper, not leopard, leper, have a cleanliness problem that I hope to talk about this morning. 
Like I said, here in a bit, we're going to read a big chunk of scripture. But before we do, I want to kind of talk through some of the things that we're going to hear in it. And my hope and my prayer is for all of you kids and also for all of you adults who may be tempted to, you know, do what I did maybe when I was a kid and we'd go to a museum. Kids, have you ever been to a museum? And, and it was always kind of like, oh, cool, we're going to a museum You know, people are kind of like, they pay money to go to museums. And I remember sometimes going to certain museums, and it was like, this is it? It's like, where's the ball pit? You know, where's the rides? Where's the thing? There's just like pictures on the wall and stuff sitting out here, right? Have you ever gone to one of those museums, and you're like, oh, why why do we have to be here all day long? And then you grow up just a little bit more, and maybe maybe it's like a World War II museum. And, and, and suddenly you realize, hey, my, my grandparents, my grandpa was in that war. My, my grandma lived through that war. And all of a sudden, you, you, somebody informs you, gives you just a little bit of background, and you start to realize the impact that that war had on your life today. And then the older you get and you start to realize that, the more that museum starts to take on more life and more meaning. And you realize that's why people pay money to go to that. My hope and prayer this morning, I want to just walk through a few of the items that we're going to touch on when we read the scripture. And my hope is that it would kind of help you to realize your connection to it. My goal is that you would leave here shocked and amazed by the blood of the lamb and the opportunity that you have to live purified. Again, I I hope you'll leave here shocked and amazed by the blood of the Lamb. Maybe it's a new concept. Maybe it's it's an old concept. But we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this uncleanliness problem that we have. Many of us know, and I'd say all of us, even kids, know the weight of guilt and shame. Does anybody know that weight? Anybody Anybody else in there know the weight of guilt and shame. It's like you wake up and then all of a sudden that weight settles in and you realize like, oh man. You know, I've told the the story and I won't tell it real long, but I remember one of my early childhood memories of of feeling that weight because I was in class and I had jumped up and I broke this clock and I had to pick it up and the whole, you know, everybody looked at me and I had to pick it up and I had to walk to the principal's office and just wait outside and I felt the weight of that. Now, I realize some of you guys went to the principal's office like every couple of days, and I was like, no big deal. For me, though, it was like the one time. It was devastating. And I can feel that weight of guilt and shame. Oh, what have I done? Do you know that weight? Now, this, do you know the weightlessness and the freedom of being purified? Like, we know the weight of guilt and shame. Do you know the, the weightlessness of being purified? I mean, as parents, I love in the morning at certain times, I love seeing my kids with that pureness that's there. When they wake up and their eyes are bright, 
You know, and, they, and there's just a joy that they go through life with. And all of us, and the, the thing about it is when our kids are toddlers and babies, you know, when they're not crying, at least, they, they more often than not, they, they live their life that way and they bring so much joy and they're so fun to look at. And even as our kids grow, many times they, they still have that. But the older that you get, the weight of life starts to come in and the fewer and fewer times there are, even in my own kids as they've grown older. But I love those days. Can't you picture that when, you're, when your kids or maybe nieces and nephews or somebody, there's just carefree, pure. It's an amazing picture. It's a picture of what God wants for us. And it's going to be in this passage that we're going to read about. You see, God temporarily dealt with this cleanliness issue, this holiness issue. God wanted to be with his people, but his people were dirty. His people were sin-stained. And so the author here in a moment, he's going to kind of put this picture in our minds of, of the earthly tabernacle that was set up and that we talked a lot about back in Exodus. And he's going to kind of zoom through. He's going to, you know, if you remember that story, if you have any familiarity with this tabernacle, it was a way that God set up so that he could be with man, which as we're going to see in a little bit is unthinkable. It's unfathomable because we have this cleanliness issue. And yet he created this thing and he's going to talk about, you know, he's not even going to talk about the courtyard. You know, we're, we're past the altar, past the basin. We've walked, opened the first curtain and we've walked into the holy place. And if you kind of see the holy place, you see it's almost kind of like a, uh, a smaller copy or version of like a Garden of Eden. I mean, that we can look over to our left and see the, the lampstand, the golden lampstand with its seven lamps on top and shaped like, you know, almond blossoms. And then we can look over at the, the bread, the show bread, the, the table of bread over there on our right. And again, in this world, this wasn't a place that any of us could have ever gone. This was something the priests would go into after they offered their sacrifices. And then one time a year, one, the high priest would walk past the second curtain in the tabernacle. And again, this, this was an, a room he'd walk in. And the author of Hebrews is kind of is a little bit confusing because he says he talks about the altar of incense being inside the, the Holy of Holies. And, and we know from Exodus, no, that was actually back out in the holy place. But on one day of the year, this, this day whenever the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would take this censer, this, this uh, golden thing of some kind. He'd, put, he'd take coals from the offering that he'd already made outside the sacrifice, and he'd take some of the incense, and he'd put it on this censer. And I kind of think of it as like a wireless altar of incense. So he'd walk in, and he'd put it there just to allow him to step foot into the Holy of Holies, because this represented the very throne room of God. Un unthinkable. And so this, he kind of wants to plant this picture in our minds, and then really, I think the final part of this next week, Mike will be talking about, like, why did he bring up this? He just wants us to think about the tabernacle, get a picture of it in our minds, because he's going to go on to talk about this cleanliness problem that, he want, that we have, that we're dealing with. But we realize as and he, the author points out this tabernacle, this holy place that's shaped kind of like a garden and the, and the holy of holies that looks kind of like the throne room of the Lord. They're just a pale copy of the true thing. Like as beautiful, as wrapped in gold as they are, the, art of, the craftsmanship and everything it takes, they're just a poor substitute for the true garden or the true throne room of the Lord. 
So I just kind of want to get that picture in your mind. We're going to read about it in a moment. And I want to picture, I hope you can kind of picture it a little bit better walking through it. And then we have this issue of our cleanly, the cleanliness issue. Like whenever they got done building all of these things, how did they make them so that they were presentable to the Lord? And they did that through sacrifice, through blood. What do you do when you're dirty? Kids, what do you do when you're dirty? I mean, for some of you guys, you just keep living in it, right? Never after like, when was the last time you took a shower? Your parents ever ask you that? No, you take a bath, you take a shower, you change clothes, you get clean. But what if the dirt is not just surface dirt? What if a shower can't wash it away? Some dirt becomes a stain that runs deeper, and it's harder. The deeper it is, the harder it is to get out. You see, the story of the Bible is that we are stained far deeper than any of us could ever imagine. Everyone has all sorts of ways of dealing with this stain. We can ignore it. We can hang out with other people who smell the same way we do so we don't notice it. We can shout it out with something. The problem is that God in perfect holiness looks at us and he sees that we are stained to the core. No shower, no bath can get it out. And so there's this substitutionary, it takes blood. There's been a violation. And so it takes sacrifice. It takes blood to help to remove the stain. And after the tabernacle was set up, they sacrificed hundreds and hundreds of animals and they took the blood to to cleanse all of the implements and everything to try to make it possible for God to come, for them to come close to the presence of God. We ask ourselves the question, why blood. You know, and early on this week as we were kind of planning for the sermon and I was thinking, hey, it's family Sunday. I can, there's a lot of blood in this passage. I can do some cool stuff. But then I thought, I may have people fainting. So I had to kind of dial it down a whole lot. I didn't want that to happen. But why all of this blood? Why are we talking about sprinkling blood everywhere? It seems cruel. You know, why can't we use something else? Something else valuable, you know, like like corn or soybeans or, or something else. Here's, here's kind of the answer that I arrived at with that. I think the seriousness of the sacrifice makes us aware of the seriousness of the offense. We're all good at minimizing our own sin. You know, or maybe you're good at minimizing your children's pain. Or, or somebody else's pain that you see them over there and they're just having a hard time getting over something. And you're like, come on, why are you so sensitive? What's the big deal with that? We'll see in our passage that we're going to read that there is no forgiveness of sin without blood. Leviticus 17.11 gives us a little bit of an idea of what Jesus or what God is, is thinking. Why blood? For the life of the flesh is contained in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. An animal has to die. Something that maybe we would, yeah, that's small. 
That's little, but God sees it, and he's trying to portray to us the seriousness of even the smallest stain, the smallest sin. An animal has to die, and not just any animal. You can't go find like a rat. Yeah, wouldn't that be, you know, or, or something out there that's just worthless. Or you couldn't, and again, for, especially in those, those days, for them, their animals, that was their store of treasure. That was their possession. That was their bank account. And yet you couldn't just go out to your flock or somebody else's flock and say, give me, you know, like the runt. Give me the, the cheapest animal because I don't really want to lose. No, you had to take the best one, the unblemished one. And again, for you, if you're sitting there, why this blood? Why does it take blood for the forgiveness of sins? And I think it just kind of gives us this visual portrayal of the seriousness of our sin. So there was these blood sacrifices. All these animals had to die. But the problem was, as the writer will point out as we're reading here in a moment, you know what? This old system... It starts to kind of create a way for man or for God to move into the tabernacle so that we could be with man, but it does nothing to get to the root of the problem, down to the deep roots where the stain begins. It can't touch our conscience. Again, maybe you know, maybe you're walking in here and you're, you know, singing and whatever, but you know that deep down there's that thing or that idea or that thought or that whatever it is that's still troubling you down at the roots of it. The sacrifices, they couldn't touch that part. There's a problem with it. They're a reminder of our sin, but they can't really deal with the roots of it. Some years ago, I worked for a guy in marine construction, and he had all these barges and things. And and I can remember, and it was really strange for me, like some of the barges were pretty old, and with the salt water, you know, and all the contamination and everything, the metal, there, there would be holes that would develop in the bottom of the boat, which is a problem. Right? When you're in a boat and there's water coming in. And, and I can remember, and it was really strange, like being down there with boots on and we had this epoxy that we would make up in our hands and we'd be like filling holes in the boat to keep it from sinking. And we'd be pumping out water at the same time. And it just was a really uncomfortable feeling for a guy from the Midwest that's like, <laughs> I don't like this, you know? But we're feeling, and it gives us a little bit of a sense of what's going on in the old system is it was dealing with the problem, but it wasn't making anything new. It wasn't getting down to the conscience level. And so he's pointing out that there's this problem. And again, the problem wasn't the system. The problem was us. All of those sin sacrifices had to be repeated over and over. Thousands of animals constantly being killed to clean. And what were they cleaning? Just this, this earthly, this tabernacle that was there for a, a, just a small group of people on the face of the earth. Like the Israelites, this system, it took thousands and thousands of animals to make this system work. And you, you step back and think about it. So how is that? How are we going to globalize this thing? I mean, we have a problem here because if it takes all these hundreds and all this blood to to purify, to make it possible for God to be close to this group of people, what about all of the other people on the face of the earth at that time, let alone for all the past, the present, and all the future? What about for us today? I mean, how much blood is it going to take for us to be close to God? And that's not even our biggest problem because the author is going to point out, Here we're just talking about this earthly copy, this man-made tabernacle. 
It was just a small picture of the true throne room of the Lord. How much blood would it take in order to make it possible for us to come anywhere close to the throne room of God? The last couple of weeks, our, we've, uh, we've, we've, our kids, we've looked at the sun. Or, you know, we've been studying the sun. And if you know anything about the sun, you know it's hot, right? We can't come anywhere close to the sun. We know, like, yeah, maybe we can send, you know, um, satellites out with heat protection to get as close as possible to take pictures of the sun. But we know that we can't get anywhere or even within a million miles of the sun. And I think the Bible gives us all these pictures, and it even talks about the sun, to, to kind of show us or give us a little bitty picture of the glory of God. And the, and the Bible even points out that the sun itself is just a pale copy it's just a pale counterfeit version, or not a counterfeit, but it's just giving us a small picture of the glory of God. And over in Revelation 21, it tells us that someday there will be no more sun because the glory of God will be our sun. But it gives us this picture. You can't come close to the sun. You can't even get anywhere close to it. That starts to show us the deep, deep problem, the, our cleansliness problem that we have. I mean, imagine the immensity of the sacrifice it would take for us to come close to the throne room of God. How much blood would you need? It's unimaginable. We need a high priest. As the author has told us, Jesus is that great high priest. He's not one who, you know, he can't, who can't sympathize with your weaknesses. He knows that. Mike's been talking about that. We need a better way. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the way. He says, follow me. But what about all the blood? Where are we going to get this unimaginable sacrifice from? I want to invite you to, to turn or follow along as I read through a passage of Scripture as we answer that question, Hebrews chapter 9. And again, I know it's going to be long and it may be hard. And kids, I'd invite you, if you're there drawing or whatever you're doing, we're going to read this passage. Every time I say blood, and you're going to see a lot of blood in this, I want you to go like this. Go, eh. All right? Parents, you can do that too. The question that I hope we've kind of set it up well enough, and again, I know there may be times where it's going to be easy to zone in and out, but as we read through this message that the Lord has for us, I want you to ask this question, what is God's will for you and for me? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's that tabernacle that we're talking about. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He just wants to get us that picture in our minds. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. 
He's describing the old covenant and the old system. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And skip into verse 4. According to this arrangement, gifts... And sacrifices, excuse me, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of Reformation. He's kind of wrapping up most of the old law. But, verse 11, when when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And again, the question in the back of our mind, what is God's will for us? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You guys are doing really good. For when every commandment of the law had been declared, and, and get it ready now because you're going to be a lot of blood in this part. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent And all the vessels used in worship, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're not done yet. We're only about halfway through. You guys are doing good. (laughs) Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Where will we find better sacrifices than these? For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once 
and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, appointed back in Genesis 3 when God said, from dust you came, from dust you will return. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then we're getting to the last section here. Again, with that question, what is God's will for you? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Oh, no. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The problem is their consciences were still filled with sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings, and he's taking the book of Psalms and he's applying it to Jesus, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. God wasn't up there saying, yes, I love all of this death and dying. No, God's heart was broken. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O oh God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Skipping to verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every, high, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, and he goes back and repeats of, um, he had, what he had said in chapter 8, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts down where the sin, the roots of the sin started, and I will write them on their minds. And again, I picture that boat that we put epoxy on. He will make it new. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In the last verse, where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. I asked you earlier, I mean, all of us know the weight of guilt, of shame, of dirtiness. Do you know purified? Can you feel the weightness, weightlessness 
purified. Imagine you and me standing there with that leper that we talked about there, you know, with his deformities. And there we are as well, under the piercing bright light of God's holiness, carrying the burdens and stains from our life, from the sins, from every lustful thought, every selfish decision, every choice to choose wrong rather than right. Maybe some of those decisions and those thoughts, those things that we look back on show up as huge, deep stains, you know. Maybe it's missing limbs that we stand there with that leper beside the road with. Or maybe they're just thousands of tiny scratches and scabs and nicks that over time have festered. We're unclean. And there we stand. What do we look like? What would we smell like? As a group of people, no one would want to be around us. We are truly unclean. Where do we go to get clean? The Bible paints a very vivid picture of that is what we look like. That leper gives us an example of what God sees when he looks at us. But this isn't a story where God doesn't like being around sweaty, gross, stained, dirty people. The fact is that we can't be around him any more than we can approach the sun. People say, if God were all loving and all powerful, why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? Why doesn't he get rid of all this impurity? Because if he did, none of us would be here anymore. But the story of history and the story of the Bible is not about a God who turns his back on broken, dirty people. It's a story of God enacting a crazy plan to make it possible for us to draw near to him without being utterly destroyed. It's a story of us being invited into the very throne room. How is that possible? As there we stand with the leper, stinking and stained by sin, crying out, unclean and falling on our knees before Jesus, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the gospel message is this. Jesus, stretching out his hands, saying, I will be clean. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the men are going to bring down our communion plates. And my hope and my prayer is we've asked this question, where would we get that much blood? And we get to realize today we don't have to come up here and sacrifice some animal. Maybe you're coming in here with loads of guilt and shame, and you, your dirtiness is just is showing itself before you. We don't... Stand here today to try to have to go to some priest to, you know, sacrifice an animal. Hebrews tells us about a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus himself, the great high priest, went in by his own blood and said, I will be clean. And we have the privilege of celebrating communion. When we take 
his body, and his blood. And we're reminded, where would that much, where would such an unimaginable sacrifice coming? Millions of animals wouldn't cut it. Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood is what refines us this morning. And I want to invite you, as, after I pray and when they come down, to just, if you have entered into the blood of the Lamb, to just take the cup and hold on to it for a moment, and, and we will uh, share that together. But let me pray first. Father, this morning we've asked the question, how can we deal with the, the dirtiness? Father, maybe we come in here fully aware of it, fully aware of the weight of guilt and shame, or maybe we're feeling like we're doing pretty good and we come and look around and see other people that are dirtier than us. Would you open our eyes, Father, to how you see us? And then would you open our eyes to the incredible, shockingly massive sacrifice of Jesus that was done one time, already done. We've had the privilege to already enter into that, to take the body and blood of Jesus. Lord, we know what we were like without you, but yet to take on this brand new identity that only was possible through Jesus, Father. And I pray that we could do that. And I pray for every person in here that hears this. Maybe they're aware, maybe they're not of their state. I pray that you would open their eyes and that they would not be able to leave here today, Lord, without experiencing what it's like to be purified by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We are now back on our standard fall schedule with two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.